I'm joined by a good friend of the podcast, Smooth Grandma himself, to talk about the Wild Card re- Weekend. How are you doing, Smooth Grandma? I'm doing great. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. This is me. This is very exciting. This is a new era of the podcast. Um, and it's, it's very, I'm very excited to talk to you, you know, over the computer, like voice-to-voice instead of just through your know, Twitter and everything else. Like we've you've grown to become friends for these past two years. Um, so in Houston Texans land, it was kind of annoying, kind of annoying watching, you know, the wild card round weekend and to like just want to watch, you know, like six really good football games. And there were some that were good, some that were whatever, um, you know, some that were boring, but like just kind of just want to be locked in on the NFL playoffs as a whole. And the entire time the Houston Texans refused to let that happen because we were, you know, met with more rumors about uh, Deshaun Watson being, you know, an inter- not necessarily an inter- uninterested, but maybe be uh, perooting around about maybe asking for a trade and kind of like getting the feelers around his teammates to the night that there was the report from Pro Football Talk that uh, Khan with the Steelers, who works in their front office, was going to be the general manager of the Houston Texans uh, based off the fact that their uh, search firm came up with him, the guy in Seattle. Um, also, they also came up with Lewis Riddick. And then there was one other guy as well, too. Or two other two other guys, but it made it sound like Khan was gonna become the general manager of the Texans. And then Alan Noah or Jack Easterby swooped in, got Nick Casario hired, got Nick Casario six million dollars, and was able to keep him for three million dollars as well. Um, so what's what do you think? Do you like are you buying this rumor? Like do you think this is how this whole thing is gone? Or is this just like leaking in a way to save face in um some weird way? Um I think it's pretty damning if it's true or if even like even if if more than half of that's true it's pretty bad i would like to think that most of it's not true but with the way things have gone for the last year and a half i tend to think probably a lot of it is at this point because it seems like whenever something comes out about the texans it's pretty accurate mm-hmm. yeah that's a great point and i know he's kind of about that a few times in the show the past two weeks talking to tim about like whenever there's any sort of rumor there's some like level of truth to it, you know, no matter what actually ends up happening with it. And like with the Houston Texans, every single rumor that comes out, you're better off thinking that this is the truth than whatever the team is telling us, because what the team has been telling us for the past, like you know, two years or so has just been everything from like to disinformation to complete and outright lies. Um, and so I don't, I completely buy this rumor that, you know, Colin was going to become the GM and that East Ray was able to swoop in get Casario in. I think the thing about uh, about Easterby too is that like if another general manager came in was trying to figure out how the process worked, or the state of the organization, the culture of the organization, even before they came into trying to make personnel decisions, I think 100% Easterby would be would be fired. But by him being able to get Casario in, now he's able to keep his role, keep his paycheck coming, and be able to still keep his influence with the with the team at the same time. 
Yeah, but um, with the Game of Thrones, like the SA article, SI article um, articulated, the guy that's coming in is always the guy that's going to catch you next. So maybe we get lucky and Casario's like, yeah, you're gone. Hopefully so. And like, I, I don't not like the Casario hiring. And I think, you know, said on the last podcast, like I think it was absolutely embarrassing the way a lot of people reacted to the Casario hiring because it became this like whole like, East Street thing and the, the team's ruined because they hired Casario. Like, nobody knows if Riddick would be a good general manager. You know, Riddick is really famous for saying Eli Apple is better than Jalen Ramsey. Uh, nobody knows if Colin would be a good general manager. Nobody knows if the you know the guy in Seattle would be a good general manager at all. We don't know if Casario is going to be at all either. And that's just kind of like the nature of the general manager role. Like all this stuff kind of happens behind closed doors. We don't know if they can point to of them being good or not or anything like that at all, or how they interview or what their uh, personality is or what their goals are for the organization or how they're going to be able to build this team going forward all whatsoever. And so you have to give these guys the benefit of doubt. But yeah, like the optics of it are absolutely ridiculous. Everything that stemmed from it are absolutely insane. And like the thing about Casario too, like he's walking into, yes, yeah, Mike Melser said on Twitter uh, today, which is a good way to describe it. Like it's a hornet's nest. Like there's no honeymoon period. There's no like getting to know each other at all. Like he's coming in like a complete uh, like serpent slayer. And so how he navigates this, which is already a really difficult job to begin with, is going to be very interesting to see because like there's enormous decisions to make like already in the next month regarding cuts and free agency coming up in the middle of March too. Yeah. Um, the hope is that we're booing JJ Watt, right? So the hope is we drafted JJ Watt and we booed him on the first day. And hopefully that's kind of what's going on here. You know, mm-hmm. we're booing the guy who's going to be really great for us, but this is also, this would be like drafting Derek Carr, you know, two years or three years, what was it actually eight or nine years after drafting David Carr? And you get booed for that yeah. too. That's kind of the optic of it, like you said. So, I mean, he's going to get a shot. He's got the money. He's got the length of the uh, contract. So he's he's going to have time. We're going to find out what he's about for sure. But yeah, it's pretty ugly. It's pretty ugly. Yeah, I think that's a great comparison. If Houston did draft Derek Carr in 2014, nobody really think about like the fact that you know Derek Carr can be a good quarterback as long as he doesn't deal with pressure in the pocket and he has a good arm and good touch on deep pass. Like nobody would have thought about that at all. They'd be like, oh, it's another car. We can't do this. This is going to be, uh, you know, complete bad luck and be terrible, miserable. And like, you know, looking back on it, like if Houston took either Carr, Garoppolo, or Bridgewater, like they'd probably been like an AFC championship contender with the defense they had and the talent they had existing. And uh, we wouldn't have wasted our lives with, you know, that large run of quarterbacks. And like, yeah, it brought Deshaun Watson eventually. But, um, you know, it's something that's kind of interesting in that sense of it, too. But, yeah, like, I'm, I'm interested in Casario. I like, even there have been ex New England guys who have been good general managers. Like, John Robinson in Tennessee is a good example of that. Even though he's, like, really anti-New England. And, like, the fact that, like, he trades up, he pays a running back. Um, you know, he paid Ryan Tannehill, even though, like, the contract that he got, even though that doesn't sound like something like Belichick would have done, too. Um, the way he's kind of drafted doesn't really fit the same mold as New England as well. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with Casario. I think Rivers kind of mentioned something important on last episode where like Casario is probably going to trade down the draft, which is important for Houston because nobody really knows what you're getting in a prospect. And so it's good to have as many lottery picks as possible. And say Houston's been known for trading up in the draft and having less draft picks. And so I think for that one reason alone, I think Casario will be like at least some sort of a, a boost from you know, Rick Smith, and then even he'll be an immediate boost over Bill O'Brien just by having some level of competency at that role at the same time. Yeah, uh, having the fell safe at the end who says, yeah, that trade's not a good idea. We shouldn't do that. Like having that, there's a, there, yeah, there's a level of 
it can't go below negative. Like it can only go to zero. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. And it's kind of like, um, like you know, if you ever you know, do any work electrically at all, or you have like a Kerr key system where you have one key has to make sure that this key can only open this lock if it's been pulled out. So that way you can't have two things energized at the same time. It's kind of the same thing where like, oh, I want to trade DeAndre Hopkins. He pulled this key out, but now you can't have both pulled in at the same time, have both sides energized and lead to a complete disastrous decision like that. Or, you know, in this metaphor, having circuits parallel at the same time. And uh, just so, so like having that, you know, like competency, that um, level of checks and balances involved will be very important for a team that try to operate in this very unique and circular structure uh, that ended up being a complete disaster for this football team. Yeah, and one of the great things about the Patriots is uh, they draft terribly in the first couple rounds, and we don't have any first-round picks this <laughs> year important. or second-round picks. So, But I think we have three seventh-round picks, so by my math, that's like two-and-a-half Tom Brady's right there. There you go. And, uh, well, and also, too, like the only – like Hasario and the Patriots, the one weird thing they've done is draft running backs in like the second round who end up being pretty bad. As long as they don't draft a running back in the second round, I think they'll be okay here. And they've had problems drafting wide receivers as well, too. And like those will be like the two positions that really um, kind of escaped them there. But like, yeah, if you have 15 picks, you know, it makes it a lot easier to find guys. And, you know, they've done a great job like with their offensive line scouting specifically and getting a whole lot out of a whole lot, out of a whole lot little there. And it'll be interesting like with this offensive line going forward, how expensive it is. If they try like trading body, get rid of weight there, get rid of, uh, salary there and then try to find cheaper guys in the draft or maybe on picks in the draft about the offensive line. And I also think too, like Josh Allen's a really good example this year. Uh, the Bills have a very average offensive line, but whenever you have a quarterback like Josh Allen, like Deshaun Watson, like Russell Wilson, who are like mobile, have the strength, like the you know dexterity and quickness to deal with pass rush, you don't have to pay a whole lot for an offensive line when you have a quarterback like that. And also can throw yourself in a lot of boxes to open up the run game, which you kind of saw with Houston week 16 and 17. Especially in that Bengals game, like David Johnson, some big runs against you know, six man boxes too. And so like for that reason alone, it'll be interesting too to see if Casario takes that aspect of Houston as well, where they try to build an offensive line in the middle of the draft instead of spending high dollars and high draft picks at these premium at these so called premium positions. Yeah, if the tax is to spend a second round pick on a running back every other year, I'm okay with that if we're never trading like a number, a top three wide receiver. For a running back again. If that's the tax, I'm okay with it. <laughs> like, if that's the alternative. Yeah, yeah. Or also not trading two first round picks and a second round pick for a left tackle. Like, look, left tackles are important, but they're not that important. And uh, one of my favorite things about the Tensel trade, you know, two years ago for the argument for was like, well, the Texans are going to be good and they're going to draft in the mid 20s every year. And like, yeah, the 23rd pick isn't that valuable. You don't know who you're going to get. And now here, here is the tax and it's due and it's the third overall pick. Again, like football is a very, you know, high variance game. Things change a whole lot year to year and you have no idea what's going to happen. And Houston gives up a third, a number three overall pick, you know, for a guy who had, who is like the most important part of an offensive line that, that had the worst run offense in football this year. And Watson took the second most sacks this year too. And so like, yeah, Larry Tensel is very important, but um, it takes a whole lot more than that to have a good offensive line and a good offensive structure as well too. Yeah, I remember we talked about that on Twitter, uh, I think, almost a year and a half ago, and my metric for success was if both of those picks were 25-plus, then I was fine with the trade. Mm -hmm. But if they fell below that, then it's not good. And obviously, the third uh, overall uh, fills that metric greatly. Yeah, and I, it's, I wouldn't have thought, like, 
like given this season too, I thought it was more than likely. I thought Houston's gonna be like eight, you nine and seven, and be the third wild card team. Um, but I thought it was more than likely that this whole thing would fall apart. Then they would make the jump and become some sort of Super Bowl contender. And it's like, what are you even doing here with Deshaun Watson? If you know eight or nine wins is the most you're able to get with a quarterback of his caliber, and uh, instead of what happened was you know the opposite end where the whole thing fell apart. Now they're having to rebuild and go forward. And the other thing too about like Bill O'Brien is that. Now, I think a lot of people are forgetting during this whole like uh, Easterby, you know, I don't know, this whole Easterby saga is that he brought Easterby here. Like Bill O'Brien brought him here from New England. He loves Easterby. He's the one who created this entire like culture here. He's the one who gave Easterby more and more power. Well, this whole thing's fault ended up being his undoing, like you mentioned, with the Game of Thrones reference uh, that like the next guy is the one who cuts out, cuts out you after you make this occur. And uh, so like, I think that one part of it's been kind of left out during this whole fire Easterby thing, uh, do that part of it too. Yeah. And part of the irony of that is him being uh, a character coach. I think he's had influence the last couple of years on like who we drafted based on probably some kind of character profile he builds, like those old school quizzes you would take Mm -hmm. to find out what your gifts were, quote unquote. (laughs) So because of that character profile, we never would have drafted a talent like Laramie Tunsil because he had some unfortunate draft night videos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I didn't think about that at all. And that was kind of why they drafted Tyus Howard, too, is that you know, he almost pushed uh, Tim Kelly out of a window in the hotel room. Like, we have to have this guy right now. And maybe that's Jack Easterby saying, like, that's the guy that you need. Like, that heart, that exuberance, that love for the game of football. That's what we need in Houston. Um, so, 2021, where do you think Deshaun Watson plays football? Oh, he's, he's going to be in Houston. Uh, what what would be a fair trade for Deshaun Watson if he was to be traded? Uh, you know, if he's going to a team that has some success, so there's going to be the higher draft picks, um, like I can't see anything less than three first-round picks. Not Like that's the baseline for what makes – you don't make that trade unless Deshaun's making you make that trade. But if he's making you make that trade, then three first-round picks is where you start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's weird because, like, in football, they don't have the same level of leverage that they have in, like, basketball and sports like that. But because of the franchise tag. So Watson has two more years under his current con- – or I think he has three more years in his current contract. Um, and then including the franchise tag. And so it's not like he really has the ability to force himself out anywhere at all. But the only thing about it is that even if he tries to, you can always franchise tag him and keep him around. And so it's not like he's ever going to be an unrestricted free agent if you don't let him. Or he'd be like, yeah, I'm not going to sign a long-term deal here unless uh, – I'm not going to sign a long-term deal here at all, you know, so you better make a decision with me right now. And so at the moment, like, Watson's under contract until 2025. Like, it's, it's, this is going to be the 2021 season. Like, he's under contract for four more years, even not even thinking about the franchise tag. And so there's no, like, real way at all that he can force himself into a trade unless he just, like – stops playing completely, you know, and just sits and completely boycotts playing football, um, which seems very highly unlikely. I mean, the Roughnecks are supposed to be back um, by 2022, <laughs> so there's there's that. Yeah, he can always, uh, Taylor Heike can always back him up for the Roughnecks uh, next year. But yeah, like, I don't really, yeah, that's a good point. I guess he could go play in a different league or something. But like, there has never been a situation in football where like a guy, except for Le'Veon Bell, and end up ruining his entire career, where a guy just sits out for you know an entire season like that, um, and like Watson's been paying that sort of thing, but I couldn't imagine that. So I think all this stuff with Watson is just kind of, you know, kind of like the vulture circling um, the starving people on 
you know, as they travel across the Mojave Desert and like just picking up clicks and picking up, you know, sources and keep pushing this narrative more and more. I think in a certain sense, like it's good for, you know, the Texans as a whole. It's like it's good for Texans fans because this sort of resentment, this sort of attention drawn to the franchise as it being as dysfunctional as, as it is, drawing more and more spotlight on Jack Easterby. I think it's a good thing. And I think this is the only way that could, you know, lead to something where Cal McNair could possibly force out somebody that none of the players seem to like that is there, doesn't really like his tactics at all. And again, led to the trade of DeAndre Hopkins because there's nothing football about the Hopkins trade. There is nothing monetary about the Hopkins trade. Trade DeAndre Hopkins doesn't give Kiki Cutie touches or round Cobb touches or make Will Fuller, you know, Will Fuller's not better without DeAndre Hopkins. Everybody was worse off without it. And Watson got better because young players tend to get better. And, uh, and it was a complete like culture trade. Like it was a complete, um, it was completely like an employer employee relationship problem. That's why it was traded. And so just because of this character coach that occurred is, you know, absolutely sickening that, you know, future hall of fame player is gone, uh, because of something that doesn't matter and isn't part of the game itself. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be an unfortunate part of, uh, the Texans history. Hopefully, this is the bottom and hopefully there's not a movie made in 10 years about how bad it gets. Yeah. And it, it's funny. Cause it's like every time we think we found the bottom this entire season, there's always another level like Brooks Reed picking up a sack in week 17 against Houston is like, it can't get any dumber than this at all. And then everything that's happened since the season has ended has gotten a little bit dumber. So I don't know. I don't think we've hit the bottom yet. There always seems to be another, you know, floor below the floor we're currently in. And uh, it seems like it is kind of infinite, the source of misery you know, that the team can have at the same time. But I, I do think this thing will work itself out, though. I think big thing has to do with the head coach signing, too. Uh, but even who I think is going to be signed probably doesn't work that itself out also. Who do you think is going to become the next head coach of the Texans since they haven't started that process just yet? I mean, I, I think it's a shot in the dark right now. It, with the way this is going, it could be someone we never haven't even mentioned yet because... It seems like from what's been put out there is like this whole thing is just like well, like I, I what and I didn't really understand why we were interviewing head coaches simultaneously mm-hmm. with GMs because the GM is going to be like yeah well I'm going to want my guy for sure because my success depends on his success so I I really have no idea I mean I would like to get a younger guy just because um, I think biologically you're more inclined to learn newer strategies and you pick up quicker on analytics and things like that and you trust it more than some of the older uh coaches so but that doesn't mean that you can't just go to madden and sort by the youngest coach and sign him <laughs> yeah they don't have like a potential rating that makes it a little bit easier to see what their rating may yeah, be a plus plus. yeah yeah from now um well the rumor was on twitter today that john mccain said that or john mcclain john mcclain said that <laughs> That the Texans interview list will come out tomorrow sometime, and that we'll have an idea who Casario is going to be targeting as head coach. But yeah, that's a great point. Like, why did they even interview any head coaches at all when they saw how long they wanted to have the GM position taken care of first? And it really does seem like the Caldwell, the Caldwell interview and the Marvin Lewis interview were just Rooney Rule requirements. They interviewed Tim Kelly. That definitely seems like something just to appease the Sean Watson at the moment. And like, I'd be fine if Kelly stuck around as like, some sort of offensive assistance sort of role because he did do a good job building the best pass game that um, he, what Watson has had in his career aside from like those really hot weeks of 2017 his rookie year. But personally, I think it's going to be Jared Mayo and it's just reading the tea leaves because that Aaron Wilson article makes zero sense. 
And then also with uh, Cal McNair, you know, talking to Mark, uh, Mark Vandermeer, saying that, you know, the next head coach is going to be very, uh, uh, very e- extroverted because, you know, Casario is introverted and he's going to make you want to run through a brick wall, that sort of thing. And that just sounds like some ex-player you know, who's going to come in here and yell and be tough and, and smart and dependable. And I could 100,000% I'm seeing, I'm, I can already see Jared Mayo become the head coach here out of nowhere. I mean, that just sounds like you're describing at origin. <laughs> um, he's just going to come in and coach us up and just yell things. You know, I'm not even really sure what he's saying. But it sounds good. And you have Joe Brady as the offense coordinator, and you can get the best talent in the country every single time. Um, the, other thing, yeah. the other thing that I thought was really funny about that, too, is that, you know, in the press conference, one of the things Cal talked about was, well, we got to build a, a wall, you know, brick by brick and with the mortar and make it all stick together and build a wall. And every day is another brick, and we're going to keep building this wall. And the Casario hire is just a really big brick, which doesn't make any sense at all. And so it's also funny that you know they're trying to build this wall, Casario being a big brick in the wall, and then getting a head coach that's just going to run them right through that wall and destroy the wall that they already have built. And so the whole thing doesn't make any sense at all. Like, I really have no idea at all what they're, what they're trying to get at, what they're trying to accomplish right now. Yeah, I mean... I heard, I saw that part of the interview where Kyle was like, and we're going to need some mortar in between the bricks. And I was thinking, no, no, no. <laughs> you, you need Casario to be the brick master, the mortar layer, the brick layer. Yes, he's, yes, a, yeah. he's a masonry guy, not a brick. He doesn't stack people on top of himself. Exactly. But That's a great point. Out of the 54 brick roster, we got a lot of bricks to build. Yeah, yeah. I think we probably have like one good brick right now, and then the rest of the bricks, you know, can leave and not leave. But. You know, you still have to have you know, 52 more bricks to make a football team. Uh, but, yeah, tomorrow... Most of those bricks are uh, the ones that you see on Team Impact where they just bust them with their hand and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I like that. <laughs> uh, so tomorrow, we by the time you're listening to this, there probably are going to be like more Texans rumors and you know, Texans this and that about everything that's going on over there. Um, so all this may already be like debunked. But that being said, there were some football games this weekend that you know kind of drove me a little crazy. And we'll kind of start the AFC first here with, of course, the most important one, which was the Bills being the Colts 27-24. Like, personally, this was a Super Bowl for me. And, like, I knew I loved Josh Allen. I knew I loved the Buffalo Bills. But I had no idea how much I loved the Buffalo Bills until uh, Josh Allen took that 17-yard sack, and I thought they could possibly lose it. And uh, it was really tough. I got adrenaline going. I had cortisol going. Uh, I, I got nauseous. I was like, oh, this is what it is like to watch sports again after not really feeling anything watching a sporting event since, you know, last year in Kansas city, which just became numbness pretty quickly. Yeah. I remember a quote like uh, probably eight or nine years ago, someone was describing Bill Belichick and they were saying he's brave because he wins by just enough. And I don't think that was true. I think he tries to win by as much as he can. It's just how the game ends. Mm-hmm. And that's how I feel about Buffalo. Like they win by just enough. And they do that through kind of absurd ways sometimes, like that sack and fumble and all that stuff. Um, but I guess they're brave for, you know, trying to keep scoring. Yeah, well, and it was, I don't know, there was two things about that game that drove me crazy. One was Brian Dable had those two possessions where it was run, 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 and then another possession that was run, run, run. And like, look, the worst part about the Bills is their run offense. Well, their offensive line is average. Um, Singletary hasn't been like the tackle breaker, number one running back you want. Moss, Zach Moss is kind of slow, and he also has a fumbling problem as well, too. And like, again, like the Colts have a really good front four. They have like 
two of the best, like chase and tackle linebackers in the NFL, like Darius Leonard's incredible. And like running the ball up the middle like that, like I understand what you're trying to do. Um, like just try and create like some easy, consistent yards, that sort of thing. But they own like kicking those two possessions away whenever just spreading Indianapolis out, stretching their zone defense horizontally. Uh, that was the key to beating them. And they did leave points on the board by points off the points off the board um, by doing those two by doing that thing. And it really kind of drove me crazy those two possessions. And I think it made that those two possessions made this game a lot closer than it should have been. Yeah, and I'm sure that's one of those things where they're looking at film and they're like, oh, we can exploit this right here, this one thing. And so I guess they try to do it six times in a row and it doesn't work. And they're like, okay, let's do what works. Yeah, yeah. And I think they're trying to set up like a play action deep shot. You know, they're like, okay, if we can get, you know, first on the ground here, um, we could probably run like, you know, a deep dig with a post over the top of it and be able to get like the, like, the left deep safety to bite down or whatever, or get like a, a seven man box. I think they were really just trying to get the Colts in a, a single high safety look, which was that touchdown digs because of, again, they're stretching them horizontally and it lets that blitz and hit that shot on that one play. But it almost kind of got them out of that game. The second thing was like you alluded to, like I alluded to was Allen's uh, sack fumble where he broke out one tackle. The second tackle he was trying to break out of and get the ball high enough. So that way he could throw the ball to my feet to not take the sack. Instead, he fumbled, and uh, Buffalo was luckily able to recover. Because if they didn't recover that, the Colts are in line for a scoop and score opportunity. But they did lose um, 13 yards on that sack. And so what happened on that sack? Well, they lost 17 yards. So they went from Indy's 34-yard line to the 43-yard line, which then gave Indy a chance for a game-winning drive where at least a field goal would have tied it, and they ended up running out, out of time. Because he had thirteen play, thirty nine yard drive on that one. Um, so, what do you think? Like, do you are you like me? Are you a fan of Josh Allen? Do you accept that to enjoy the highs of Josh Allen? You have to understand there are some lows that will happen here and there. Yeah, you want like the people that aren't like uh, the teams that aren't like your your inherent teams, like teams you just pick to choose for. You want them to have a wild card. You want them to have that thing that you can't predict. And that's what Josh Allen is. That's what makes him fun uh, some of the times, just because you don't know. That's what I love about Ryan uh, Fitzpatrick, because you don't really know what's <laughs> going to happen with him. But he's super fun to watch. Um, I don't like his face, though. Josh Allen's face, it's just, uh, it doesn't do it for me. He's kind of young, though. I think, he'll, I think he'll harden over time, you know. He'll get uh, the Jeff Hostetler look eventually. Yeah, I think so. And also, like, his mustache isn't filling in all the way. Like, I think he's so, like, I, yeah, I think he's still going to become even an even better athlete. And I still think he's going to get better as a quarterback, too. And I think, like, his body's just kind of like another example of that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And if, you know, worse comes to worse, he can go uh, work with uh, 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 with the coach in uh, Kansas, Andy Reid. He can um, work on his mustache with him. That sounds good. I like that. Uh, well, and Allen had the other play where they ran that quarterback power run where he got, like, stuck behind the line of scrimmage, and he was able to pull it off what he couldn't pull off on that fumble where he was able to get the ball up high enough out of the tackle and hit Dawson Knox in the corner of the end zone. Uh, by far the most screwed up RPO I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah, uh, for a second there, because he did a little spin, I think, somewhere in the middle of it. And I had this flashback to when he got uh, destroyed. Uh, I, think, I don't know if it was last year or the year before. I think it was against the Steelers where someone just came out and clocked him in the side of the head. And I was like, go down, go down. <laughs> Yeah, he doesn't at all. It's like watching, it's like he hits a beehive and tries to outrun the hornet's nest and they all come chasing after him with all of his stiff arms and you know, crazy maneuvers. And 
That fumble also was like really similar to that sack he took in the loss against Houston last year in the playoffs, where like Jacob Martin sacked him for like a, a 19 yard loss or whatever and knocked him out of field goal range and led to a punt. They were able to get the ball back and end up tying it in an overtime. Um, but yeah, like with Allen, like he's been able to smooth out some of the lows and some of the hysterical, but like you have to have that edge with him. And it's what makes you know, Josh Allen such a beautiful player. And just like the athleticism he has is why like, you know, like him leaping Anthony Barr and stiff, arf, stiff, stiff arming Anthony Barr's rookie year, like that made me an Allen fan. And it's like, whenever guys have these insane traits, these things that nobody else can do, that's enough of like something like that's sublimeness is important. And if you're able to have a coaching staff that can nurture and develop that sort of talent, like you lead to things like Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City is an, an example of that. From what is like Texas Tech videos to what he is at Kansas City now, and Allen's another example of that as well too. And I think we get so wrapped up like in the coaching, uh, in the scouting process with quarterbacks and like how's his accuracy, how's his footwork, how's his brain, all these sort of things. But sometimes it's like, can this guy uh, hop on a motorcycle and jump thirteen school buses? And like really, like if you have a guy who has that sort of level of talent, um, and you have the right coaching staff around it, you can get things like this, like. You know, Kansas City's been able to get with Mahomes and now Buffalo with Allen. Yeah, and the only thing I wonder about with Allen is if he had been given, you know, the Patrick Mahomes or the Aaron Rodgers treatment where he got to learn behind, you know, a real, really good uh, professional quarterback. Mm -hmm. If he would be this good now, if he had sat for a year or two, or if he would be better, or if he'd be worse. Um, I think it's always a really fun kind of mind game to play, looking at guys like how they handled Tua and Fitzpatrick this year. But obviously, Allen's pretty good now, so it's working out. So maybe he didn't need that. Yeah, I think what what happened with that, I, I there's always that argument too, like you know, it's better off to sit a guy for a year or two and then throw him out when he's ready, so that way he doesn't like lose total complete confidence. And uh, and I don't know like what the best ways to do. It's good to kind of know what you have in a guy early, but I think it's kind of important to stick with him though if you go that path and. You know, Allen's rookie year was really bad. Last year, he had no downfield passing ability, which really kind of, uh, which like hurt Buffalo's offense completely. And this year, he's become a full quarterback. But like, you have to, I think if you do that, where you start the guy right away, you have to understand like, we're going to give him a little bit more time or whatever. Like, we'll give him four years instead of just like one season or a season and a half because we're throwing out here, throwing him out here in the fray soon. And I believe he backed up Tyrod Taylor his rookie year and started. Like around like week five or six that season, or even maybe sooner than that, um, and took over that role. And so it's been a lot of fun to watch his maturation development, though. Yeah, I still feel bad for old Tyrod, though, getting his lung punctured <laughs> this year. Yeah, the joke I made was that the team doctor was the MVP of the Chargers season because by doing that, it led to Justin Herbert starting in week two instead of when they have been like week six or seven or eight or whatever. Um, and like Herbert, I think is like the best young quarterback in football. Like he's better than Kyler. He's better than Baker. Um, he's better than all these other guys from rookie contracts at the moment. Yeah. Um, I mean, Kyler, he's like a, he's like a Russell Wilson mini. I don't know. Like he's not there yet. Maybe he gets there. Baker. Like, I, I don't, I don't really care for Baker, but that's just me. He's playing well this year behind yeah. that amazing run offense. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk about Baker in, in a little bit here too. Um, one of the things that was one of the problems that Indy had this game was that they couldn't generate the interior pressure they needed. Like the Bills' interior offensive line of you know Morse is great, you know, Feliciano is fine, Bucker is you know below average, but like Autry and Stewart and Buckner, like they weren't able to create enough interior pressure this game, and like that was the one part of the passing game they had to win 
They had to be able to knock down past the line of scrimmage. They weren't able to do that as well either. And uh, be able to like force Allen wide into like these looping kind of edge rushes. And they were able to do that portion of it. Like Allen was able to get out on his own and hit throws down the sideline. Um, they were able to get like two big blitzes where they were able to kind of suffocate him back there. But um, what this led to, though, really kind of changed this game, was that touchdown pass to Deshaun, uh, Stephon Diggs on the sideline. And they blitz six. They do an interior blitz. Now you have single high safety. You have Diggs on the outside, man coverage against um, against Carey over there. And, you know, Diggs wins his matchup, and Allen delivers a perfect throw. And Buffalo's up 27-17 um, at that point. And it did feel like it was over in a little bit, but Buffalo's defense still has been great this year, and it led to... Uh, three-point win instead of, you know, a 10-point win after that point. But, like, that was the one problem that, that really hurt Indianapolis this game. It's been a strength of theirs all season. Uh, they just didn't get enough interior rush for them to win this game defensively. Yeah, I think it's a great asset as a quarterback to be able to recognize when you have a single high and you know that you have an ace receiver that you can throw it up to because he's going to probably win his one-on-one matchup. I feel like that's a really good thing to have. Yeah, I mean, it is, and, like, that's what makes Buffalo so, like, such a great team is that, like, offensively, they have receivers who have different skill sets. I love teams with, like, wide receivers that have, you know, four or five different skill sets. Um, It's like what Houston has. They have, like, you know, four small, tiny, fast guys, you know, and, like, you need need difference in those, like, for how you can beat zone coverage and man coverage and which quarterback matchups you get. And so, like, Diggs, you have, like, the all-around number one wide receiver can carry an offense in the zone. With Davis, you have kind of more of a speed guy. Brown's kind of a speed guy. Uh, Beasley, you have that like slot shifty receiver. Dawson Knox is a big is a big receiver in the middle of the field can stretch the seam a little bit. Their running backs are good pass catchers too. And so like it's an entire like group of guys that um, each one has different advantages to be able to attack kind of any coverage and swear cornerback matchup you can get. And like with Diggs on the outside, like I think it's been really underrated how how easy it is to have an offense when you have a guy like Diggs. After the Hopkins trade, I think the fan base has turned on him after that trade happened. I think they really kind of fail to understand like how easy it is to design and coach an offense when you have a guy like Diggs who can consistently beat man coverage and like you know there's always yards here and there's always first downs here and you always have the option available to you any play. Yeah, yeah, and uh, some people get lost in some of the advanced statistics. Like uh, one of them that was thrown out last year was the average yards of separation. I was like, yeah, well, that statistic doesn't really matter on curl routes. Mm-hmm. But but it is what it is. But yeah, uh, Buffalo and Diggs, that's a great combination. I didn't. I wasn't a huge fan of the trades. I think the, uh, that's a lot of capital to give up for a wide receiver. But um, it's working out for them. You know, they know what their window is and they know how they got to use their assets. Yeah, I thought the trade was cool because of this wide receiver class where they're like, we, we have a, you know, a mid-round pick. Um, we scout all the wide receivers available. We can get somebody, you know, in the first round, like, you know, 23rd overall. And rather than do that, we're going to trade Diggs. And we have, with Allen, the rookie contract, we can trade Diggs. We can sign him to extension. We can pay him 15, you know, $16 million a year without a problem because we're paying Allen, you know, $3 million this year. And uh, they just went with the guy who they thought was best and it worked out. It worked out for Minnesota too, where they were able to select Jefferson. And it's all, I always like trades whenever... There's like two winners involved. Like both Minnesota got better because of it, and Buffalo got better. And I also hate trades where nobody gets better. It kind of felt like the Houston Arizona Hopkins trade. Like nobody won that trade, and everybody just kind of ended up kind of like upset. Where Hopkins seemed kind of miserable, missed Deshaun Watson, and you know, Houston misses Deshaun. Wa- I mean, not Watson, but I mean Hopkins misses Deshaun Watson. Like Houston missed Hopkins throughout this year as well too. And so that seemed like a trade that nobody really won. You know. 
Well, I think Arizona won that trade because they sold a lot of Hopkins jerseys. Yeah. Not just to Arizona fans, but probably some Houston fans too. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, like, of course, Arizona won the trade, but for like this year, it didn't bring like the results that were expected. And it, Hopkins really didn't, didn't like, I don't know. He never seemed like he was super happy there. Like he never really fit there the entire year as they just had him run speed outs over and over again. And, uh, absolutely drove me insane. I love like how much shade he throws back at the Texans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think he one hundred percent four or five times. Yeah, I think he one hundred percent misses Watson though. Like every time like Kyle Murray like overthrows him a, a vertical route, he's like, Oh my gosh. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah. But he's got a great young energetic head coach over there. They're gonna have lots of fun. Yeah, I hope so. I hope it like the car the idea of the Cardinals, so better than what the Cardinals were this year. But sometimes it takes a little bit of time for things to work themselves out. And I think next year the Cardinals should be like a 10-win team, even though it didn't work out fully this year. And their defense was actually like really kind of surprising. And um, Van Chester did a really great job there. So is there anything else about this game you want to talk about at all? Um, No, no. I, I think that's all I can handle of Colts. Yeah, I, I hate the Colts so much. And if, like, I don't hate the players on the Colts. I just hate the fan base and the franchise. And, them booing Andrew Luck, and I don't like their jerseys, and you know I'm so t- and I hate Peyton Manning, and you know he absolutely tortured me as I was a you know fat child growing up, and uh, so for those reasons, like I I absolutely have heard the abhor the Colts because of that, and the Colts like took out Josh Allen, like I would have been heartbroken, and I don't know I may have just given up on the NFL playoffs altogether, but I'm glad uh, Buffalo ended the drought and they finally got a win uh, for the first time, I guess in I guess for the first time in 25 years, so that was good to see. So the other game I have here. Or the, the my second favorite game this weekend is Baltimore Tennessee. Like this is like a really fun rivalry and probably like one of the last like really good rivalries left in the NFL. Like both these teams really hate each other, and I didn't understand like it even went back to like the early two thousands. Like the Ravens and Titans just absolutely just don't like each other at all. But the the play of this game uh, wasn't even really a play; it was a decision that was made. So Tennessee was down thirteen seventeen. They had the ball Baltimore's forty yard line on third and two. Tannehill took a shot to AJ Brown, missed. Fourth and two with Derrick Henry, who's, you know, Mr. Uh, Mr. DH2K, MVP candidate Derrick Henry. They punt the ball down 13-17, and they do this for uh, 20, 25 yards of field position. They make, these, they make this decision for. Was the punt the right call? No. I mean, there's a lot of uh, analytics you can get into that really quickly to show you like where that is on the scale, but it's really, really far down the bad side of the scale. And if you're taking a deep shot on third and two, then like in your mind, you have to be ready to go for it on fourth down because this is your burn play. Mm -hmm. So it didn't make any sense, but uh, sometimes in the heat of the moment, you think you, uh, uh, you want the vote of confidence in your defense. That's what they call it. When you punt it, you're telling your defense, I trust you. Yeah, and the defense played pretty well. They're able to force on a field goal in the following possession. Um, they had a really good stop, and like Baltimore went for on fourth and two, and they called that offensive pass interference penalty on Snead that stopped that. But even then, like it took a penalty for them to get the ball back on that one. Um, you know, I I think one of the things for Tennessee in this game, and of course after that happened, you know they made the field goal. It's a seven point lead. Tannehill has the ball back for a game tying drive opportunity. Cleve Raymond falls in the post route. Marcus Pierce picks him off. And they all run out and stomp on the Titans logo afterwards. And that was ball game for it. But for Tennessee, like, they had to play a Titans game. And they did so because they went up 10-0. But they did get stopped in the red zone on that field goal they had. 
And the other thing is that they lost the turnover differential. And then also they didn't, uh, they didn't hit this fourth down opportunity. Uh, that's what makes the Titans the Titans is ever, they do all these weird things. They're able to hit on these weird ways. And I think one of the hard things for him this year uh, for this game too is like Mike Vrabel was so good being a CEO about being like a game manager throughout the game. Uh, like what we saw last year in last year's postseason, that kind of mind tricking pull on Bill Belichick to be able to, you know, soak as much as he could out of the clock against them and drive them insane. But like Rabel was calling the defense, and this was the best defensive game plan he's had all year. The defense, the Titans defense was a bomb five one this year. They had a great game against them. But that aspect of it, that weird kind of bizarre, you know, uh, chicken fried, you know, Mike Rabel tied in sort of weird, weird portion of their game wasn't there. And they didn't hit those aspects of it that they need to hit for the times like really be the Titans and and win playoff games like this where the talent level is pretty similar. Yeah, I don't think they were expecting their offense to be stimmied as much as it was. So there wasn't the uh, the trick box wasn't there for the game. Um, although I do love the quote from Derek Wolf after the game about the logo stomp. He said it wasn't disrespect; it was a show of unity for his team. Okay, I like that. That's a good thing. I like that one. Uh, well, I think the big problem that Tennessee had here was that Derek Henry had 18 carries for 40 yards, with just 2.2 yards to carry. I mean, Baltimore's front just—I mean—they kicked their ass the entire game. Like they line of scrimmage just moved backwards consistently enough. Um, there was no separation for Henry. Like it wasn't until like 4:40 was left in the third quarter they actually had like a Derrick Henry sort of run, was able to break a tackle and like get eight yards at once. But other than that, like he was completely suffocated and uh, he didn't really have a whole lot of space to work with. And, you know, Baltimore's front just won this game. Yeah. uh, He's been working as like an entire offensive game plan for a while, you know, run, run, play action, play action, run, all that stuff. Um, But you know that the guy is really, really fast. So, you would hope there was some kind of like fly route scheme, even though pass catching isn't his great thing, but um, something to get him past the box just so he can show his speed off. But I mean, that didn't seem like that was uh, available today. And Baltimore just did a great job. Yeah, they did hit them on that one flat route and it was like quickly tackled where he only had like a four-year gain on it. Uh, and also I think Derek Henry looked pretty tired today. Like it seemed like he didn't have the same level of burst, you know, and after having, I think he had like 365 <clears throat> carries this year or something absurd. And so I think that was kind of, I think he just looked kind of fatigued at the same time. And he didn't have the rushing lanes involved too. And like having that many carries is eventually going to catch up to you. And like as much as I love, you know, the Titans outside zone game this year and like, and getting Harry, getting Henry 2,000 yards. Like I do think they, that was a big miss they had this year was that they didn't have enough, they didn't give themselves enough reps throughout the year to be able to like operate out like five wide receiver sets, out spread receiver sets. So they came into a situation like they did in this game where Henry's being suffocated. They didn't really have another option past that. They weren't like ready and prepared for it. And it kind of reminded me similar of like the Texans 2018 season where they won with the ball control offense, but now once they're behind, they have no answer at all to how to come back because they've only played in one way throughout the year. And like you're going to get punched in the face. You have to have a different answer. And the Titans didn't in this game once they actually end up falling behind. Yeah, so I think um, to all Rams fans that listen to this podcast, you're welcome. You know, we really <laughs> wore out Henry last week. Yeah, you, they really did. Uh, all the Ravens fans out there are so happy about the fact that Henry had, you know, 31 carries or whatever it was last year, and you broke 200 yards yeah. again too. Um, AJ Brown it's was hard running that far. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a long distance for him. AJ Brown had a really great game on that first drive, especially where like he mastered. He's mastered like 
the offensive pass interference where you don't extend completely. You just like do the half extend. You give them like your little arm. And they usually don't call if it's like a short, if it's like a, a dagger shove instead of like a full like Claymore. And he had a really great drive on that on the first drive, but he was the only guy out there who was able to beat coverage against Baltimore. You know, Corey Davis got hurt and didn't play much in the second half at all. And uh, like their passing offense was AJ Brown, and that was it. Like, what do you what did you think about uh, Tennessee's passing attack this year or this game specifically? Was it just because the run game was bad and that creates their entire offense, and they didn't have any other options past that point? Yeah, I mean they're the kind of team that really needed to go out and sign like a Robbie Anderson last year or something. Um, and didn't do it because I saw, you know, the Corey Davis game against the Texans where he was really keeping the game close for us with those four drops. Mm-hmm. But uh, so coming into this game, he's not very consistent. And um, I guess he gets open against good cornerbacks too, but I don't really know. Um, but uh, yeah, it looked like they didn't have a good third option out there um, because it was uh, it was A.J. Brown or, or nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and their first their matchup earlier this year it was kind of, it was a little zany, but uh, one of the things that happened that first matchup was Corey Davis was great on the outside, and uh, AJ Brown was great on the outside too, and so they're able to beat them on the outside when their matchups one versus one, um, in pass coverage, and so today in their passing game they end up having only, um, they end up ha- AJ Brown six catches for eighty three yards, and then their next best receiver is Anthony Ferkser two catches for forty four yards. Corey Davis was targeted twice and zero catches. And like that was, they had to have him have success on the outside and they had nothing from him at all. And it was pretty much Brown. That was it. And with, you know, Derek Henry having only 2.2 yards to carry, like they, there was nothing existent at all from them in that end. And it just like, it wasn't a tight ends game. Like they didn't do what they needed to do to be able to uh, pull the upset and beat Baltimore. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing. I think that the score at the end of the game was just 20 to 13, as mm-hmm. bad as Tennessee's defense has been this year. Um, getting torched by the Browns, and then Baltimore can only drop 20 on them. And that was mostly off of a couple of uh, great Lamar uh, Jackson runs. Yeah, and that was kind of interesting thing, too, about Jackson. It's like you ha- you can't play like 90% perfect against Jackson or 95% perfect against him. Uh, you have to play perfect for the entirety of the game because all Jackson needs is a crack to bust the whole thing open. On that 48-yard touchdown run, the Titans try to run like some interior twists, which screw up their pass rush lanes, and they play cover one behind it. And now everybody has their backs turned, they're chasing, he takes off, and nobody's able to regroup and be able to get them. And uh, that was able to, like, that started like the Baltimore uh, kind of turning point for them in this game too. And so like it's funny, just like they had a great game plan. They did a great job on the edges. They did a great job attacking the mesh point. They did a great job on the backside of these runs. They did a great job against these double teams. But like all it did is it took one crack to, and one busted play, and uh, it threw their whole game out of whack because of it. Yeah, and that's the nature of Lamar Jackson. There, uh, you have to be really disciplined. And sometimes that doesn't really matter because I hate that word discipline. You know, your defense fans gotta set the edge. Your linebackers gotta, uh, um, what's the word? They gotta spy. Uh, but you know, one of the words that you'll never use to hear some of the greatest defenders that ever played the game is discipline. Guys mm-hmm. like Joe Palomalo weren't disciplined. They were instinctual. Luke Keekley was instinctual. So maybe against Lamar Jackson, you got to be more conventional. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and then Brooks Reed had sacked this game by bull rushing Tyre Phillips, and it led to DJ Fluker. You know, he bull rushed him be- uh, into the into the bench on the sideline. Let Tyre Phillips be out there, and that was kind of funny too. 
Uh, the other, the other thing that was interesting about this game was Marquise Brown finally had a good game and was able to actually attack the sideline somewhat. And that's been the one portion missing in Lamar Jackson's game in his career is like he's just been a bad sideline thrower. He threw that one interception early on too um, in the first quarter to Malcolm Butler. And like if if once Jackson locks that component, I think he can because he's a great deep middle thrower. He's a great short, uh, quick thrower as well too. If he get that one part of his game down, that's the one thing holding him back. And seeing like anything from Marquise Brown, I think is enormous as you kind of think about the next round, them playing Buffalo. Um, and maybe potentially playing Kansas City in the in the AFC Championship game, it comes down to that. And like that's the one thing I'm really kind of watching for every single time I watch Lamar Jackson play is can he hit these throws along the sideline? He was able to hit you know two or three a day. And like it's not much for most quarterbacks, but for Jackson, it's monumental with all the other skills that he has too. Yeah, I love uh, Brooks Reed's stat line, which is one sack, one tackle for a loss, one quarterback hit, which is nice like merciless is like last six weeks combined. <laughs> Um, watching Lamar Jackson uh, throw the ball, I was, I just had this one question resonating in my mind, and I was, I can't believe he's rated higher in Madden than Deshaun Watson. Oh, is he really? Yeah, he's like a 91, whereas Watson's a 90 or something. Gotcha, huh. Yeah, I've been playing Madden, I think, since like Madden, maybe 12 or so. The only only video game I ever play more is NBA Baseball 05, and I play it once a summer, and uh, and after that, I get kind of sick of myself. I can't believe I'm doing it, but it's the only game I end up playing at all. Uh, the next game here, Cleveland 48, Pittsburgh 37. So the Browns went up 28-0. So the first snap of the game was a fun, was a snap over Roethlisberger's head. I think Maury, Maurice Pouncey was still drunk from last night. And then uh, I think it was Snell was the running back, was trying to recover it in like ahead of the goal line so they wouldn't end up having to lose points for a safety. And ends up getting knocked back into the end zone. The Browns are able to recover. After that point, it went uh, interception, touchdown, punt, touchdown, interception, touchdown. The Browns are up 28-0. And this game kind of reminded me of like the 2014 Super Bowl where you know, the Broncos have that safety on their first snap. And it was all kind of like downhill from there. Except that game didn't have really any sort of comeback at all whatsoever. Uh, are you surprised at all by the Browns upsetting Pittsburgh in the way that they did? Um... Yeah, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't, just because there's too much, there's too many unexpected scores that happen for that not to be surprising. Um, there is something I think, there's two things that I love about it, though. One is that anytime a team plays someone in Week 17 and they go easy on them or they rest their starters, mm-hmm. knowing that there's a pretty high chance they're going to play in the next week, I always want that team to beat their ass. Because that's just not how football is supposed to be played. Um, the other thing that I uh, uh, is kind of a it's a weird thing it's just that I noticed is that they um, assigned the fumble to the center statistically. Oh, really? Which is how it should be. Yeah, but in the uh, Nick Martin game where he threw it at Deshaun Watson's ankles, they assigned it to Deshaun Watson. I just thought that was an interesting, interesting thing. Huh? Maybe if you touch it, but if you touch the snap in the air or as it comes to you, maybe this would make the difference. That, but I know that that's interesting. I feel the same way too about that week 17 thing. And for me, it stems from like that. Uh, I guess it was the 2010 Texans whenever they had to beat the Patriots week 17, they did. And then if the Bengals beat the jets, they would make the postseason. and the Bengals rest their starters. The jets win. The Jets get to play the Bengals and wild card round. The Bengals get their teeth kicked in. Uh, the Texans, you know, go two and zero against them in the playoffs. The Bengals never won a playoff game in the Marvin Lewis era. I like to think that the Bengals have been cursed ever since that decision to rest their starters against the Jets instead of allowing, you know, our our Houston Texans get in that year. I was so upset about that. 
Yeah, yeah, I remember that. That was the uh, the year that was it. Welker was out there, like on like the yeah, Apollo extra point Wel- attempt Welker, and got yeah. injured. Yeah, Apollo yeah. killed Welker and tore his knee up. Yeah, that was the first time they beat New England too. And I remember being so excited for that Sunday night game. And then after like a minute, I was like, "Are you kidding me? Like really, Cincinnati?" And uh, they ended up losing like thirty-one to seven. And then you know, I think they lost like twenty-four ten the following week too. Yeah, they're gonna be. Uh, I don't know what they're going to be next year. Poor, uh, uh, what's what's the quarterback's name? Uh, Burrow. Burrow, yeah. Joey Poor Burrow. Buckets. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I was excited to watch him this year. And, like, even Burrow, I don't know. He was, he was fine. He wasn't all, I don't know. Like, there was something, like, I don't know, something missing about him. It's hard for me to explain. I think it's just mainly because, like, I'm all about guys who can throw downfield. And, like, he just wasn't a very good downfield passer this year. And, and that was the one thing kind of missing for him this game or the season for him. But, you know, Pittsburgh, the one thing about them is that they have a great defense and, like, their game plan was pretty much like, all right, we're going to have to stop the run early on the downs, get Baker into shotgun uh, and spread formations, then be able to, like, blitz him and create pressure like that and try to force some mistakes. But then when you're down, you know, you're down 7-0, 14-0, 21-0, 28-0, you kind of lose that aspect of the game and their game plan. And they didn't like they couldn't help Cleveland win this game, and they kind of gave away, gave it away to them in the first quarter. But that being said, like Cleveland's game plan was really great, even without Stefanoski out there. Um, by like using by attacking the Pittsburgh's linebackers and safeties, like you know this was a bad game for Minka. He's had some bad games this year. This is an awful game from Terrell Edmonds, an awful game from Spillane. Um, they like to do that thing too. They were having Edmonds play linebacker, and they got crushed in the run game whenever they did that too. And they did a great job just, like, scheming to open up the middle of the field. And Jarvis Landry had a great game after the catch, too, um, because of that reason as well. And they, like, the, the Steelers' pass rush never really took off. Like, their front four rush wasn't very good. They didn't get a chance to blitz very much because of the deficit they were in, too. And, you know, also, like, Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt, they were more physical than the Steelers' defense was. Like, their offensive line was more physical than the Steelers' front. And it was, like, uncharacteristically, like, it was the most anti-Steelers game I think I've ever seen. Yeah, and the optics of this game are really interesting. It's going to be one of those games that has a couple of records in the records books, and then you're going to go back and look at it. Like, That's a weird game uh, because Steelers could move the ball. I mean, Roethlisberger threw for 500 yards. They just had some uh, unfortunate interceptions. They had two of them were unfortunate. Two of them were just bad, a bad play by Roethlisberger. Um, I will say that my favorite part, my favorite like single moment of the game, I think was in the second quarter when Richard Higgins caught a pass and Chris Collinsworth just ripped him. Like, yeah, he's the guy who can't really run routes good. And he's not really a burner. <laughs> he's like, he's not really good at anything. <laughs> he just gets, he just gets 500 yards a year. Yeah. And then I think and he I caught like, that pass and took it. Well, no, uh, he gets like two catches for 20 yards. I guess, I guess it was Landry. Who yeah. Was I, he took off on that one. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, Collinsworth was right. The dude had seven targets and only two catches. Yeah, that's not very nice, though, Chris. Um, yeah, but Roethlisberger, 47 for 68, 501 yards, four touchdowns, four interceptions. The other thing that was kind of funny about his interceptions was that he was missing high a lot in this game, and so the Browns just played two safeties deep and just capitalized on all those passes that were just, like, high and bounced off his receiver's hands and were able to, like, even, you know, create things, like, turn that back around and quick scores immediately. And, like, I wrote about that in the 10 Things to Watch For for last week that, you know, they had to create turnovers, create short fields, 
um, to get easy to get easy points against that really great Steelers defense. And I thought Miles Garrett, like strip sacking Roethlisberger, was probably the best opportunity to do so. And it turned out like Roethlisberger, you know, could do it all himself. Uh, they have no running game at all this year for Pittsburgh, and you know, falling down, it ended up being like a complete Roethlisberger show. And you know, this is what you get for like from like a thirty-nine-year-old Roethlisberger in January. Yeah, I mean, I have flashbacks to when he chased down the Jamal, uh, not Jamal, yeah, the bus, Jerome, Jerome Bettis yeah. fumble uh, to save the touchdown, like, and eventually won the Super Bowl. Like, that's not the guy you have anymore, but he's the guy who sits back in the pocket. It kind of reminded me of, like, when Sage Rosenfels would come into a game, it's like, okay, we're about to make some crazy throws and make some <laughs> bad throws. Yeah, I would like to, I, I need to go back and watch that YouTube video of him chasing down. Um, that play, because like, I've watched the entire Roethlisberger's career, but you know I was like uh, in middle school when he first came to the league and that sort of thing, and now that's coming to an end. There's so many things that you know I've forgotten or I've seen or don't remember it all anymore um, at the same time. The other thing I thought was really dumb about Pittsburgh was that like Cleveland didn't have Denzel Ward, and their outside cornerbacks aren't very good, and Robert Jackson and Terrence Mitchell, and they did not, and like they did not attack him on the outside until like, the second quarter of this game. And you're like, you have Claypool, you have Deontay Johnson. Like, throw those routes down the sideline, attack these cornerbacks in the man coverage. And they just did a poor job and so like the second quarter actually attacked those matchups. And that was also like very stupid as well, too. And I mean, just all around, just like Pittsburgh was out coached, they were out hit. And it was just like an absolutely embarrassing loss. Yeah. And they had so much momentum going into that fourth. And then they just made this one decision that blew my mind. <laughs> uh, so I have it. It was just like, if they were, like, they had it, I have it here. They were, they had the ball fourth and one at their own 46 yard line down 23, 35 after, you know, like you mentioned, like they score back to back touchdowns, got back in this game and uh, they decide to punt instead of go for them fourth and one down 23, 35. And like, what does Cleveland do? They get the ball and they score a touchdown immediately and have a long drive. At that point, the game is over entirely. Yeah, that's one of those things where it's like one of my biggest um, fan plays of the Gary Kubek era was the motioning, coming in a single back, motioning the back out of the backfield for a five-wide receiver set, and then letting Matt Schaub do a QB sneak. Just pull the linebackers out and QB sneak it. And I can't think of a single time where he didn't get a yard. Mm-hmm. And almost any QB sneak is going to get a yard, especially if you uh, you know, are a great team like the Steelers with a great offensive line. But, uh, yeah, it's like all the all the courage just went out the window. And after that, I was like, well, here we go. Yeah, and like you mentioned on Twitter, we almost had you know, like something similar to like the 94 uh, Bills-Oilers game where they were able to come back from, you know, enormous, I can't what was the exact lead of that game? Uh, it was, I think, 34 to 3 at halftime. <laughs> Absolutely insane. Um, and like they were, I was like, Six years old, seven years old. I just remember the halftime score is the only thing ingrained in my memory. <laughs> That's cool. I know Diehard Chris, we did that podcast this summer talking about it. And he was at that game himself. And he was like, I'm very intrigued by what's going on right here. And he sort of like demons her, you know, ways he can get out of that. And, you know, Pittsburgh by Pine kind of, kick, kind of ended their chance to be able to come back in this one. Um, which decision was dumber, Mike Tomlin's decision or Mike Rabel's decision? Oh, Tomlin's. Yeah, because Tomlin didn't have anything to lose. Like, yeah, being down by the score. You're, you're still down. down by a lot. You're down by two scores. You need these scores. You know, Vable's like, we got time. You know, maybe we'll hold them. Our defense has been good. You know, we didn't spot someone 35 points. 
But yeah, Tomlin for sure. Yeah, I agree with that. And it took the delay of game, and I was just like, oh come on, guys. Yeah, and also like the delay game too, where it was like not even a like the quarterback under center and a shotgun where he can yell a lot to try to draw some outsides instead of like they're moving their like uh their up backs in the punt formation. Abs didn't make any sense at all whatsoever. Um absolutely astounding, very stupid. And yeah, both these coaches are gonna have a lot to think about all summer. You're getting knocked down the first round of playoffs after having like you know really great regular seasons and having home playoff games that they lost. Um, mainly because of, like the decisions that they made to, you know, go for it on fourth down or punt on fourth down when they should obviously have gone for it. Now looking at the NFC, the NFC, all three of these games were, I don't know, I was, they were either boring or intriguing for a second. Um, the first one was the Rams being the Seahawks thirty twenty. Like personally, I picked the I picked the Seahawks this game. If I knew Golf was going to play, I would pick Golf, even though Wolford kind of looked like the better quarterback in this one too. And the main reason why is like the Rams have the best defense in football this year. And they're a tough matchup for Seattle because they play a ton of quarters and they stop their deep passing game through that. But also they're on the outside with uh, with Ramsey out there and Williams out there. They have the cornerback talent to cover Lockett and Metcalf without having those two deep safeties. And like with the way they're also so good at you driving on like intermediate middle routes to be able to crush those sort of dig routes and stuff with their safeties. And like Metcalf took a vicious hit by Johnson in this game too to be able to kind of stop that as well. And, like, Seattle doesn't have a good, quick passing game. Like they've been trying to find in the last seven weeks, but it's mainly just been like, all right, here's a slant to Metcalf, and here's Tyler Lock in the slot, or in the flat, after, you know, Russell Wilson dances around the backfield for, you know, six to seven seconds or so. And, again, like, they have, Wilson's great against pressure, but interior pressure can kind of screw him up, and the Seahawks are able to generate interior pressure throughout this game as well, too. And uh, it was an absolutely awful matchup for uh, Seattle, you know, offensively, but you just kind of assume, like, with Wolford out there, they'd be able to win this game, like, 2016 or something along those lines. And instead of impact like that at all. And uh, Los Angeles is able to win 30-20 instead. Yeah, the the optics of this looked really weird. Also, I mean, you have uh, Jared Goff having to come in with one hand uh, and, and be the hero for one pass. I mean, he <laughs> threw more than one, but only one mattered. He threw 19 yeah. and took two sacks. But, uh, I mean, and watching DK Metcalf is also a really intriguing thing because he has this great deep speed and this deep ball and this jump ball athleticism, but he still struggles with some of those cuts for those shorter passes. Yeah. Like, but he did this uh, comeback route against Ramsey, and he caught it, but not because he made a great comeback. You know, his deceleration and his turn wasn't that great. It's just that Ramsey was respecting his speed and left enough room for him to, to uh, make that catch. So. There's room for him to get better, but the, the game that Wilson had uh, was sad. It was sad to watch. Yeah, and he was 11-27, 174 yards, 6.4 yards in attempt, uh, two touchdowns, one interception, five sacks taken, lost 32 yards, a QBR 17.6, and like the Seahawks have to have you know magical MVP Russell Wilson to be a great team, and he was that the first six weeks of the year, and then he played Los Angeles, and like their entire offense has been kind of thrown around. And Jocelyn, since then, they've never been able to get fully back on track. And, like, his best throw was that out-of-pocket play um, that scrambled Joel to Metcalf on that 51-yard touchdown. But that was pretty much it. And the other thing I like about this game that I think was kind of funny was, you know, Metcalf had that tantrum on the sideline the first quarter because he didn't have any targets yet. He needed to get the ball. And, you know, he was very frustrated by everything that was going on. And they set up, like, the most obvious wide receiver screen like you'd ever see um, there on the left sideline. And Williams picked it off and took it to the house. And it was the first 
wide receiver screen that was intercepted intercepted this year. Like it's really kind of impossible to intercept one, but Sway missed his block. Williams was all over it. And, you know, Seattle is trying to come back against this really great defense from that point on, and they ended up losing 30 to 20. And like this game really was kind of all about that portion of it too. Um, and then Seattle also fumbled the punt return. They kind of, you know, screwed up their game winning drive attempt where uh, golf was able to come in and hit Robert Woods on that corner route. And that kind of sealed it from there, but it was very frustrating, like all around. And you know, I know how Seattle fans have been kind of, they've been in a weird spot since their Super Bowl loss to New England, where they always kind of find themselves in the wild card divisional round and can't get past that hump, you know? Yeah. And I was hoping DK Metcalf was going to go like full TO on us and be crying in the post game, but I guess my quarterback, but <laughs> it didn't happen that way. He just went halfway. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's disappointing because I like, I like the Seahawks as a, as a team or like Russell Wilson. But uh, it's weird the way they scheduled or not scheduled, where they game plan this because they do have a good running back Carson. He's a he moves the ball, but uh, you know they didn't really kind of capitalize on it. They couldn't move the chains. And they couldn't complete passes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean like Los Angeles's run game really did a great job. Like their run defense was really textbook on the defensive line. It was like punch and hold the outside shoulder and sit, wait for the running back to make a decision, and control your gap. And a lot of Carson's runs were just bounced. Like he would, you know, get into like the A gap, have to bounce everything wide. And the hard thing about bouncing runs out wide, it's like you have to work twice as hard for the same amount of yards. Um, this thing kind of getting those easy yards in the interior. And like he just didn't have any lanes. A lot of his stuff came, you know, bouncing things outside the tackles. And, you know, I mean, Los Angeles' defense is just phenomenal. They're coached really well. Um, their defense coordinator, Staley's going to get a head coaching job. I think he's going to be great. Uh, after watching this game, you know, especially. Like I think he's a much better. Def- I think he's a he's the best defensive minded head coach available, and he's better than Eberflus as well too. And like even though he has this insane talent or whatever, like I think his defense, like without any sort of linebacker play, you know, turning kind of no name guys into great players this year too. And Williams and there's the production they've had safety, and also like the way Gaines has played on the interior, same the Morgan Fox too. Um, being what they have out Leonard as well, and like having all these guys be able to you know feed with what Aaron Donald produces for him too has been really uh, spectacular throughout this year. And, like, they're going to go up against, you know, the, kind of the best offense. In, or, you know, it depends. Like, when Kansas City flips on, they have the best offense. But Green Bay, by the numbers, have had the best offense in football this year. And so next week's going to be really fascinating to see what they do. Like, in the snow, in kind of like this kind of brutal, heavy run environment. And watching, like, Ramsey against Devontae Adams will be a blast also. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be fun. I, uh... I do want to keep track of our former Texans as they play in these playoff games. Yeah. Uh, so we had Carlos Hyde for the Seahawks with his four carries for five yards, <laughs> which is a little bit deceiving because he had a long of three yards. So he really only had three <laughs> carries for two yards outside of that one good run there. Yeah, you can't forget the outlier. Yeah. Uh, and Mingo had a big play today. That was pretty nice to see. Oh, we've got a lot on the Bears. We've got a lot of former Texans. Tayshawn Gibson was awesome today, um, as well. He was. Yeah, I don't want to. We'll get we'll get to them in a second as well too. So, like going for it next week. Like, do you think Goff is going to start here? Or you think Wolford's going to be the starter? I don't think he can go back to Wolford. Yeah, I don't think so either. And like, I think Goff is better than Wolford, but Wolford like provides that like you know, spread ability and some athleticism too. Like like you mentioned, like Goff hit two throws. He hit that corner route to uh, Woods, and they hit that vertical route to Cooper Cup, who absolutely torched you know Jamal Adams, and then the safety lost the ball in the air at the same time. And like it's funny to watch the Seahawks because they traded you know two first round picks for a guy who's just really 
a 215-pound defensive end. And, like, what he's really good at, he's really good at. But he is, like, absolutely, like, a liability in coverage. And he's been torched, you know, throughout the season, too. And like, that trade looks, like, you know, kind of hideous. I know there's some talk, like, yeah, like he, the Seahawks defense wouldn't be as it is without him. But the Seahawks defense has been very average this year at the same time. And, like, you can find a blitzing safety without giving up the draft capital they gave up for Adams. Like, you give up that draft capital for somebody who can do can cover, carry out every coverage task in a cover three defense, provide the run stop you need, and blitz all at the same time. And Adams has just like had like half of his game missing throughout this year too. Yeah, I would love if Los Angeles did what they did this week backwards, just start golf and let him get hurt first and then put okay. Wolford in. <laughs> but um, Jamal Adams, he had a funny quote at the end of the game. Uh, I don't know who interviewed him, but he was like, I'm not going to make excuses for my performance. Also, I'm wearing a brace over here on my left shoulder. Okay. <laughs> That's not word for word, but that was the gist of it. <laughs> like, I got to Man, I got to see this. I, I I know his grind was hurt this year. Like, it hampered his movement. And I hope that's like, the only thing that's wrong with him because, like, in uh, New York, like, he was better at, like, playing man coverage. He was never, like, all that great as, like, a deep, like, you know, safety or whatever. Um, but you in a cover three defense, like, as a strong safety, you have to be able to defend vertical routes. You know, like that defense doesn't work if your strong safety can't recognize a vertical pattern and defend it. And you can get stretched vertically and get crushed like that cup route was. And like they've gotten beat sometimes this year too. And uh, that's been like the one flaw of this game. But yeah, I'll have to for sure pull that up because that's absolutely hysterical. Yeah, I mean, guys say crazy things all the time. Yeah. Especially if you lose. Especially if you lose. That's when you say the crazy stuff. <laughs> And these all, all these guys, you know, being a professional athlete, they all have such enormous egos at the same time as well. Um, the other thing I liked about this game, and it was kind of similar with the New Orleans game, like I went back and watched them, went, went back and watched them miss afterwards. But like it was the second quarter, and I took a nap in the uh, Seattle game and woke up, and it was the same score. And the Chicago game, it was 7-3 New Orleans. I took a nap in the second quarter and woke up, and it was still 7-3. I'm like, God, I love watching, I love watching playoff football like this. Um, the next game was Tampa Bay, Washington. The Bucks won 31-23. Uh, so Tyler he- Taylor Heineke, is he the answer quarterback for the Washington football team? Taylor Heineke is Case Keenum. Okay. He had his game, and now he's going to get re-signed for a year, and then he's going to get replaced by Kirk Cousins. <laughs> I, would, I would love for Cousins to come back to Washington and uh, completely come back, but like against one of the better defenses and like one of the five best defenses in football, Heineke had six carries for 46 yards, including that incredible plunge where he, you know he dove from the four yard line and put the ball in the pylon. Um, he completed 26 of 44 passes for 306 yards, one touchdown, one interception, only sacked twice. And like the thing that most uh, that I love the most about Heineke in this game was like just how good he was in the pocket, just like his ability to, like slip out sacks, you know not like get too deep and take bad sacks like Case Keenum was always so good at doing. I'd be able to like step up, like bounce things wide as he needed to as well. And what really surprised me about the Bucks this game is like they blitz usually about like 35, 37.5% of the time, depending on what, you know, website you want to check in on the numbers on there. And they really didn't blitz all that much. Like they really try to rush four. They have problems against it. like Washington has a, a good, like a fine to good pass protecting offensive line. And they didn't get the amount of pressure that you'd expect from um, the defensive talent the Bucks have, which is kind of worrisome when you think about their game next week as well, too. Yeah, and 
you don't think of an NFL team as coming into a game and being like, we're looking past this one. But if there's one team that's looking past one other team, it was Tampa Bay just looking past Washington uh, with Jacoby Brissett light over there at quarterback. But <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they they come out a little flat and then they, get, uh, they almost get got at the end there. But uh, ultimately they take care of business and they are brave enough to barely win and move on to the next round. Yeah. Well, and, you know, Tampa Bay scoring 31 points against Washington, uh, that's a really good offensive effort and uh, points out because, like, Washington, too, has, like, one of the five best defenses in football. They did a good job, you know, creating turnovers. Like, this was the best game in Darren Payne's career. That forced fumble he had, like, you know, really changed changed this game around and gave Washington a chance to win it, too. But that being said, at the same time, I think this game is a lot different if Chris Godwin catches those passes. He had four bad drops this game. And the other thing about Tampa Bay is, like, I don't really love their red zone offense. Like, I know they're seventh in the league in red zone touchdown rate, but that was whenever Ronald Johnson's healthy. And they can't run the football that well without Ronald Johnson. You know, Fournette had 4.9 yards to carry with a long rush of 17 yards. Um, but he's not very good at all. Like, Fournette's not very good. And without Ronald Johnson out there, their running game really kind of struggles. And, like, you know, looking forward at Tampa Bay, like, if they don't get their red zone issues kind of sorted out, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna get bit by that portion of it, and that's why they love to take deep passing shots, like thirty or forty yards out, to kind of like skip the red zone entirely. Yeah, you're killing me with this Ronald Johnson. I think you mean Ronald Jones. Yeah, Ronald Jones, Ronald Jones. Because every time you say Ronald Johnson, I'm just continuing on like Randall McDonald. <laughs> yeah, Ronald Jones, my mistake. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, uh, it's hard to pull anything from this game for me just because you don't really know what Washington is. Like, they played a lot better at the end of the season. Maybe they were good. Maybe they weren't. So how good is Tampa Bay by playing a team that we don't know how good they are? Uh, it kind of leaves us in the dark. So Tampa Bay could come out late egg next week, or they could just keep rolling. That's mm-hmm. a, it's kind of a coin flip for me. Yeah, I mean, I think Washington for sure is, like, a solid, like, top five defense this year. Um, and, like, like the Tampa's offense has been kind of boomer bust throughout the year where it's like really high variance. You know, Brady averaged 9.5 yards in attempt this game. Um, he had long passes of he had long passes of 35, 24, 27, 36, and 22 yards to Evans, Bray, Goblin, Brown, Fournette, and Scotty Miller. And uh, so it's like with with that being like with that portion of it, like when they're hitting on their deep shots, like they'll score enough points because of it. But they can get a lot, they can get stuck and like you said with you know Ron Jones, not Ron Johnson. But when Ronald Jones hurt, like they don't have the ability to kind of kill the clock, you know, make the game short because of it. And it's just hard for them to get like easy, kind of consistent yards. And uh, that may be the one thing holding them back. But again, like Washington has a really great defense. This is a top five defense this year. And yeah, I, I can't stress this enough. Like, love Cameron Curl before pro football focus ruins him. Yamante Sweat is an incredible rim defender. He's my favorite R&B singer. Jonathan Allen is my favorite bull rush in the NFL. Chase Young is like what we want. Jadavion, what we wanted Jadavion Klein to be. Uh, Cole Holcomb is like a really underrated linebacker. Same with Bostic. And they don't really have great outside cornerback play. And none of that matters because of the front that they have. But like every year there's one football team that kind of takes my heart out of nowhere. And this year is the football team. And I really love watching them play this year. And hopefully they're able to get that quarterback position kind of figured out. Because they could be kind of like a team like the you know, 49ers were last year. where They just have such a great front four that they build around, that they're able to have like an all-time great pass defense. And then if the offense, they don't have the offense in mind to be able to scheme them into you know, 31 points a game or whatever. But if they score 24, 27 consistently, 
um, that would be more than enough for them next year. Yeah. Uh, one of the stats you mentioned about Brady with his 9.5 average, um, what I like about that stat is it's, it includes all the incompletions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he had 40 attempts and 22 completions, like a 55% completion percentage or something like that. Um, so that's taking those 18 incompletions into account and he's still averaging nine and a half carries, I mean, nine and a half yards uh, per pass attempt. So like his uh, actual completions, he was averaging uh, almost double that, you know, 17, 18 yards. <laughs> yeah, he averaged uh, 17.3 yards to completion, which is absolutely sick. And what do you think about Antonio Brown? Like, do you like watching him play football at all here in Tampa? No. It, it's weird. Like he, I don't, it just seems like very like empty. Like he doesn't have a soul at all. Like, like he, I don't know. It's just weird. It's like watching like a shark swim in the water. It reminds me, I don't know the name, but it reminds me of someone that played for the Raiders, like a wide receiver or something that just, oh, it was Antonio Brown. He just doesn't belong there. Yeah, it's, I don't know. Like, it, he's worked out really well for Tampa. Um, like, he's been great there, like, the last month of the season. But there's just something off about him, and I don't know. It seems like they made a deal with the devil by bringing him there. And there, I don't know. There's just something really strange about the whole thing, you know? If they let him return punts, then maybe I'll come around. But this version of him is weird. Yeah, he, yeah. he almost looks like a cyborg or, again, like, I don't know. It, like, it, like, it almost looks like he doesn't have, like, a consciousness or something. There's just something off about it. Uh, I mean, like, he was really good this game. Like, the end round he had was really great. That yards of the catch he had to score that touchdown was really great. And, like, he's had some great, you know, plays this year. Um, and, like, the Bucks have, like, the best skill position group in the league. And, uh, and like, I don't know. There's just still something weird about it. But I do like the Bucks. They play, like, a really unusual brand of football. And, you know, they're super talented. And I picked them to play the Chiefs in the Super Bowl entering this postseason. And that was based off the idea they play Green Bay in the first round. And now playing New Orleans, a team that they're 0-2. Uh, against this year, you know, it's gonna be interesting to see like the two oldest quarterbacks in the world, you know, play against each other uh, for the chance to play the winner of Los Angeles Green Bay. I did, I did want to see uh, Tampa Bay going to going to Green Bay, but this will work out as well too. It'd be fun watching the New Orleans again. Yeah, that's gonna be interesting because those are polar opposites as mm-hmm. far as offensive style. You know, New Orleans has been super conservative, dink and dunk. Whereas the Buccaneers, um, Bruce Arians' offense is all about pushing the ball down the field. And uh, since Arians isn't blaming Tom Brady for interceptions, it was a good game for him. <laughs> yeah, and also like the you know, the Saints have, you know, I guess the third best running back in football and the second best running back in football in Kamara. And he kind of carries their offense. And like, it's hard, you know, for him. Like, it's really hard work against this Bucks front. Um, and like, I think they kind of, they kind of like, you know, babied Kamara today and then went wear him out for, you know, next week and really kind of played their food and their win over Chicago. So the Saints beat uh, Chicago 21-9. And really the ga- the play that changed this game was that awesome play design where they had uh, the Wildcats set up in Trubisky at wide receiver. And every time any team runs this sort of formation, like it's just a give up zone read sort of play. And then they actually ran the end around had Trubisky set and throw to the deep middle part of the field and actually like threw like a really perfect pass and Wims dropped it. And like from that point on, like the game was over because like the talent mismatch they have with the quarterback position that they have um, and how bad their offense has been this year. But they had to take advantage of every opportunity. And like that was the, the best opportunity they had in this game 
and to get some easy points. And from that point on, it was kind of over, you know. Yeah, I watched part of this game on the Nickelodeon broadcast, um, <laughs> which was pretty fun. Uh, just because you get to hear cartoon references instead of like other NFL players. It's like, it's kind of like SpongeBob and Patrick. Uh, but yeah, I saw that play and I was like, ah, oh, that was uh, that was the one they really needed because you can't run that play twice. Yeah, and it kind of reminded me of whenever Fuller dropped that touchdown pass against New England in the 16 divisional round where it's like, Look, you have an awful offense. You have a defense that can, you know, keep things close. But like, whenever you have any sort of opportunity, like, you have to hit on every single touchdown or point scoring opportunity that you have. And whenever something like that, like, you have that bad of a miss, like, you can't, you can't recover from that um, with the with how bad your offense is. And you know, from that point on, that was kind of it. I uh, said, so did you enjoy the Nickelodeon pro- broadcast today? I saw it. You like? Yeah. I mean, I I didn't make it all the way through it just because. It was not a good game to watch. But yeah, I mean, that was just hearing people. It's it's interesting to hear someone instead of saying the audience or something, they're always saying, well, kids. And that was pretty funny. Okay. And they actually had, they had some good talent. Uh, Nate Burleson was doing uh, the color, the color commentary. And I don't know the guy doing the, uh, the play by play. And then they had this uh, girl up there and she's a Nickelodeon star doing uh, gleeful yays and stuff. My wife hated her, but that's not a story. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I like the idea of it. Like, it's good to expand the game um, as much as you can, whether it's to, to kids or whatever, you know. And I don't know. Like, it, it, I didn't check it out. I was watching CBS. I was listening to Romo and Nance and took a nap on the couch and that sort of thing. Um, but, like, I mean, the, I do think the Saints have the best overall roster in the NFC. The problem is the quarterback position. Again, like, they dink and duck so much. And like, they're able to create so many matchup opportunities and create easy offense for Breeze. He's able to win with his brain and everything. And he had that one like really good like dump off over Cleo Mack to score, and he had that deep pass to Michael Thomas. But like, I know, there's something really kind of empty about their offense. There's something missing, especially when they play play against a good front seven that's able to control Kamar, and he can't like carry their entire offense to that extent. Uh, but this game can really be like defined by their offense production that they were great against zone coverage and kind of bad against man coverage. And so it's gonna be interesting to watch them against Tampa Bay and see like how well Tampa with like athletic cornerbacks who you know aren't really aren't really refined at all, if they can play man coverage and blitz breeze and be able to, you know, attack them like that and be able to get some sort of interior pressure, because that's always been kind of the MO to beat the Saints in the past two years, is get interior pressure and play man coverage and um you know make that tiny little guy have to see over the line of scrimmage like that. Yeah, it, it's um it's interesting I think what you're talking about with the Saints offense with the empty part or the missing part is you're not really sure if they can really throw it deep if they need to, which is kind of, you know, the question that always revolves around quarterbacks after they get older. You know, can Drew Brees really throw the ball downfield if he needs to? Um, and that'll be interesting to see with how the Buccaneers kind of game plan around that. They're going to want to try to challenge him to throw the ball down the field further. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, my favorite thing about the New Orleans passing attack is the parents who named their son Little Jordan. Yeah, I didn't understand that. <laughs> I was like, am I, like am I hearing things right now? That's like LaMelo and LiAngelo Ball. I mean, that's that's a, that's a flex. Yeah, I like Little Jordan. That's a good name. That's a good name. Uh, yeah, I I didn't, I didn't like I thought I was hearing things, or I didn't understand. Maybe that was a nickname or whatever, but I guess his name is Little Jordan then. Oh, yeah, the full thing is on ESPN. Little... Jordan, first name. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, 
So the, we're mentioning ex-Texans this week in the postseason. So we have Barcavius Mingo. We have Brooks, Brooks Reed. Uh, we have Ben Jones today. We had, we had, well, yeah, we had David Questenberry at left tackle. Uh, and, of course, probably the best player this weekend as far as ex-Texans go is Tayshawn Gibson. And so Gibson, if you don't remember, had that fractured back week 17 against Tennessee. It was like kind of reported by John McClain that like him in the front office never really saw eye to eye. Like it wasn't like a good cultural fit, you know, whatever that means at all. Missed the postseason playing that meaningless Tennessee game. Really could have used him against Kansas City in the playoffs, of course. Um, and then they released him. And like they released him without like having really a backup plan at all for him. And like it seemed like, well, he was one of their three best defensive players the year, or one of their four best defensive players the year before. And that doesn't make sense at all to release a guy with a cost-effective contract that he had who's like really good at playing deep middle, allowing Justin Reed to do more Justin Reed sort of things and have a greater impact like in the box as a, at the robber position and be able to you know, trail guys in double teams and bracket coverages and that sort of thing. And uh, after they released him, they signed Eric Murray. And so it's like, uh, Smith Gramble, how much better do you think the Texans defense would have been if they just kept Tayshawn Gibson instead of signing Eric Murray last offseason? Um, I think the easiest way to answer that, you say, well, is the Bears defense better than the Texans defense? Well, yeah, and he's a starter on that defense. He's not just a you know a role player. The only other thing we can do is look at your favorite set of statistics, which is the PFF rankings. Oh, yeah. Um, which has Eric Murray at a nice 53 and uh, Tayshawn at a 67. But yeah, it's an indictment. It's an indictment on the Texans front office when you cut a guy who was already on a contract that was a pretty low money contract after a pretty fair season who didn't even play in the game that you got blown out in, uh, in the playoffs after beating him while he played, uh, there's a lot of things that go in that you can stack onto that, but yeah, it's, that's a that's a whiff. Yeah, I don't. I I mean, I think of like uh, there were so many dumbfounding things last off season, and like not only cutting you know Gibson, signing Murray, the contract they did, and they're paying him I think like you know four or five million dollars a year more than what Gibson's being paid in Chicago, but then also like to only make one major uh, investment for your agency on your defense that was you know, one of the, like the six worst defenses of football the year before and make that one improvement, Eric Murray, and they fell at 30th in DVOA this year. Despite what playing 16 games is like absolutely ludicrous and you know, hysterical. Uh, but like give for Tayshawn Gibson, he made the postseason. He was good on a Bears, you know, a Bears team that had, you know, one of the five best run defenses in football that was like, had good pass defense as well too. And, you know, they had a quarterback or whatever um, and could score more than, you know, 16 points a game consistently. It may have gone a little bit differently for them. And the other thing I kind of liked about watching the Bears play you know, this year was that they were like the pinnacle of team that, uh, that the Texans beat a lot of in 18, which is a team that runs the ball a lot, not because they're good at running the football, but because giving Montgomery 30 touches for 90 yards is a lot better than having Mitch Trubisky have to do anything at all whatsoever. Yeah, I loved you know, watching his last four games of the season where people were like, whoa, Mitch Trubisky woke up. And I was like, no, he played us. <laughs> and he played Minnesota and he played Jacksonville. And it was at Boomer Esiason at the halftime of the Texans games. Like, this guy's going to make a great backup quarterback. <laughs> so, yeah, like, There's an indictment on you. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can't, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe there's something there and it's bad coaching. Maybe it's a uh, Browns thing going on. But 
Yeah, I think he'd be a great backup in like Cleveland where he can run. Like, I mean, again, that's such an easy offense, you know, or like the offense like Minnesota runs where you can just play action and throw behind outside zone and, um, and do that sort of thing as well too. So next weekend we get Baltimore, Buffalo, Kansas City, Cleveland, Los Angeles, Green Bay, and Tampa Bay, New Orleans. I don't want to like really like dive in deep in seeing these games at all, but uh, which game are you most excited for next weekend? Uh, probably Buffalo. Yeah, same here. I'm. I wish they were playing uh, Pittsburgh instead, uh, just for my own, you know, my own selfish reasons of wanting to see Buffalo, Kansas City in the AFC Championship game. Uh, but yeah, I think that's gonna be an absolute blast, like watching that front try to con- like that. They have a lot of speed on their front, and they have some like big bellies on the interior of their defensive line. They can send some double teams, and it's gonna be a blast watching them. And they have really great safety play too. So that's gonna be a blast watching them and seeing Allen like take on you know, one of the 10 best defenses in football and watching Diggs, you know, go up against um, Humphrey and Peters too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just real quick. There is one player that uh, we did not mention oh, as a former text. Who was it? DeAndre Carter. Oh, for Chicago. Yeah. He had one carry for three yards and three receptions for 17, which is two more receptions than he had this whole year. Man, I must've been asleep for that portion of it. What was so funny too in that uh, Texan Chicago game was never cutie muff the pump, and it was like DeAndre Carter's ghost. You know he had the voodoo doll keeping <laughs> cutie on the sideline jammed in his hands to force that punt fu- that uh, fumble on the punt, and uh, yet the things keep repeating itself and never ceases to end. Sometimes I'm sure he just gave uh, cutie some advice before the game. Yeah, you catch it with your left hand down. <laughs> Hopefully he didn't shake his hand before that game as well too. Um, at the same time. So I, uh, I'm really excited for next week. It's going to be like division round weekend is the best weekend in sports. Like wild card is like, it's good. You know, it's fun. You usually get like one or two upsets or whatever, but next week, whenever you get like the real good teams finally out there after the buys take place, um, is like the best portion of, it's my favorite portion of the sports season, my favorite weekend. So I'm super excited for it. Yeah. I'm looking forward to good football. Uh, Hopefully some things happen that we don't expect and and uh, we get to see some really entertaining games. You know, my personal hope is that Tom Brady gets put out of the playoffs and we get a great post-game conference from him and Lamar Jackson gets put out of the playoffs and he says some great things too. <laughs> so that's, I'm looking, like, I, at this point, I guess, just after the year we've had us being Texans fans, I'm just ready for some people to lose. Yeah, so that's what you're rooting for is uh, losses and good post-game conferences after the losses. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting tired of seeing Baker Mayfield after wins. Let's see what he does after a loss now. Okay, who do you think would have, so you think Brady or, so I guess your votes like Brady and Lamar will have the best losing post-game press conference then. I think Rodgers would. I think, I think Rodgers may actually like blow up, you know, or maybe cry. I, I don't know. I think Brady would just because he's going to have there's going to be some kind of tenor or, or confidence or something because, you know, his deal is like he's not done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's going to be a forward-thinking thought that he's going to put out there, I'm sure. And I, I want to see, uh, you know, how that's presented. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that too. I like Brady's hair dye, but the one spot he can't seem to get right is the sideburns. It's like, you know, Brady looks really young. Like he's down in Florida. He gets a lot of sunlight. Uh, you know, he's plastic, you know, he's, he's down there at the retirement home and uh, he looks good in his kind of like his twilight years, but the one spot he can't seem to get is the sideburns and you can see all the greatest sideburns and, you know, 
as beautiful as well. Look, it's like a big mask that he has on right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the worst thing that I think anyone could have happen this year is a Tampa Bay Super Bowl in Tampa Bay, and that's just not a, that's not how the NFL's supposed to work. Yeah, for sure. I've I don't know. I, I mean, my pick was for them, and I don't know. I'll have to. I'm gonna watch a bunch of video this week and try to figure out my feelings. But I went two and four of my picks this week, so it's not like I'm a I'm a super football genius and. You know, I'm ups- the one thing about that Allen pick is that I bet on that game and I lost because he took that sack uh, and then knocked him out field goal range that would have would have won that. And I bet on the Titans to win and uh, and Mike Rabel punted. So hopefully next week, though, the one thing I hope is they don't punt on fourth down. Like I want to see them go for it. I was so happy whenever Baltimore did it, even though that penalty kind of messed him up for it. But that's kind of the big thing. I want to see Josh Allen win. I want to see no punting on fourth and two whenever you're down by six points or seven points or three points, or 15, or 12 points in the case of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yeah, I, I want to see Buffalo win. I want to see the Rams uh, play well. I don't know if one win, but play well. Yeah. Uh, and then I want uh, Mike Tomlin and uh, uh, the uh, Titans coach. Mike Vrabel. Vrabel, yeah. And when there's two mics, it always messes me up. I want those guys to be haunted by those punts for this whole off season. So it doesn't happen again ever. I hope so too. I want to see Mike Vrabel like doing squats with, um, you know, Rashawn Evans this summer, just saying about that punt the entire time to gear up for the 2021 NFL season. Um, so I don't have anything else to add. Do you have anything else to add before we into that show? Um, Oh, one really fun stat uh, about the Mike Tomlin punt was that, uh, when it was fourth and one, the coward index on that was 96th percentile. <laughs> After the delay of game, so it's fourth and five, it was still in the 80, I think 82nd percentile. Beautiful. Of like being a bad, <laughs> bad call to punt. I love that. God bless America. Uh, man, that's great. Well, so that's our show for tonight. We'll be back on, at least for the preview show later this week. Uh, with my good friend Taylor, who is now referred to as Anime Boar Lover for 2069, uh, to preview the divisional round of the NFL playoffs. And then if anything bizarre happens between now and then, like the Texans hire, you know, Jared Mayo be the head coach, or, um, or I don't know, Joe Bray becomes the head coach, or, you know, maybe they have a tape of, you know, Cal McNair saying a bad word and he's forced to sell the football team. Anything like that happens, so we'll have another show in the meantime. But I think it's just going to be that until Thursday night when we'll do the preview show. But this went really well, Smith Grandma. I had a great time talking to you, you know, kind of sort of in person. And I think this went really well. And I'm glad that you enjoyed your football watching weekend. And, you know, there was enough there. Enough. And I'm glad Jamal Adams' post-game press conference was enough to keep you happy this weekend. Yeah, it was fun. I, uh, I'm sure that, uh, you know, a podcast with 6 million listeners could stand to lose a few hundred thousand on one bad episode. No, I think we'll be at like 6.2 million after this one. I said until next time, I'm Matt Weston. Thank you for listening to Bowery Radio. Never be on time, sweet grandma. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. 
Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.